Remember how last time on Richest Hill, you met a sweet little old lady named Erin Siegel, who owns the historic Copper King Mansion in Uptown Butte? Rich people today are as ruthless as they were yesterday. <laughs> well, the first time I met Erin and her husband, Pat, some family had come to Butte from California for a very special occasion. My brother and his wife are celebrating their 50th <laughs> wedding anniversary <laughs> today. Today? Yeah, today? Congratulations. Today. It's, it's both of you? Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. In honor of their half-century together, the Seagulls were throwing a big party later that night. But first, they decided to visit one of Southwest Montana's most unique and popular destinations. Hello, and welcome to the Berkeley Pit Viewing Stand. For just $2, you get to tramp through a trippy, bright white tunnel, then emerge onto a wooden platform hanging over a brilliant turquoise lake, a watery egg hidden in a nest of towering terraced earthen walls, striped red, brown, and silvery gray. You can see it from space, but nowhere else in town. Daryl Clark, the seagull's nephew, says he's never seen anything quite like it. Like a mini Grand Canyon. It's, it's beautiful, but to know that it's so toxic is, is kind of scary. So it's but beautiful it's, and toxic. Beautifully toxic, yes, that's a good description. Curtis Ellswick from Virginia is there too, back in town for a college reunion. Well, I hadn't seen it in 35 years. I just figured I'd see what has happened to it, what it's doing, and you know, it's it's pretty amazing piece of spectacle, you know? What's happened is that the pit, which used to be an extremely valuable hole in the ground, has been slowly but steadily filling with water as acidic as orange juice, laced with heavy metals like copper, zinc, arsenic, and lead. Every year, around 35,000 people come to marvel at this 50 billion gallon, mile by mile and a half toxic lake that now occupies the old mine. At the press of a button, the audio narration chirps an enthusiastic narrative, noting that strip mining kicked off here in 1955. The pit grew to become not only the largest truck-operated open pit mine in the United States, but also the richest copper mine. Approximately 1.4 billion tons of ore were extracted from the Berkeley pit. Put another way? Just to make a four-lane highway leaving Butte going south, pave it four inches deep, you'd make it to just south of Salt Lake City with pure copper. That's a lot of copper. Salt Lake City, Utah is over 400 miles away. That stat is from Mark Basler, who drives a tourist trolley and has just descended on the viewing stand with a flock of a dozen wide-eyed sightseers. Butte's Chamber of Commerce gets mocked for making its huge toxic lake into a spectacle, for turning industrial lemons into lemonade. But local Pat Siegel pushes back. It's always been a tourist attraction. Uh, it used to be when it was operating, you could actually stand in the viewing stand and watch them blast part of the edge of the pit. You know, they'd blast a hundred holes and you'd see the whole mountain rise and then turn into smoke and ash and whatnot falling down into the pit. And you'd hear crumbling and cracking and nothing's falling down, so it's all internal. I find out trolley driver Mark Basler is a retired mining engineer and drove bulldozers in the pit back then, when it looked like the Great Pyramid of Giza had been flipped upside down and corkscrewed right out of the earth. I ask him if it's strange to see it filled with water now. It really is, because <laughs> when we were working down in bottom then, you couldn't see up to the stand, and the people at the stand couldn't see the bottom. Really? Really. It was that deep? It's 1,878 feet deep. 
More than mining history, most of the folks on his tour today are obsessed with Lake Berkeley, which they know now is highly acidic and loaded with heavy metals. They fire off questions like, Now what would happen if somebody fell into the water? If a human drunk some of this? Drank this water? Just throw up or what? What they're really asking is, what's the deal with all the contaminated water? So Mark explains that the Berkeley pit is connected to the extensive system of mine workings under the Butte Hill. When Anaconda Company was doing all underground mines, they had to run huge pumps constantly to keep the water out of the mines. They'd just run it down Silver Bow Creek. That's how it got so polluted. Then, all of a sudden, on Earth Day 1982, the pumps were just shut off. And because of its elevation, the Berkeley pit is downhill, making it a groundwater sink, a catch basin. So as all the mine tunnels flooded, the water needed somewhere to go. It's going to find the easiest way it can, and this is where it ended up. I learned that, contrary to popular belief, left to its own devices, the pit wouldn't overflow. But if it rises high enough, the toxic water would breach the solid bedrock currently containing it, enter the alluvial aquifer, and find its way into the headwaters of the Columbia River. The most recent data confirms what is called the critical water level sometime near the year 2023. To make sure it never reaches that point, this summer, for the first time ever, the companies in charge are pumping out and treating water from the Berkeley pit at a clip of 3 million gallons a day, a remedy that will have to go on forever. Stephen Bolas, who has a small farm in Montana's Bitterroot Valley, has been here for a good half an hour, looking out across the still waters of the fathomless man-made lake. Humans have only been here for a blink of an eye, and the the odds that we'll be around for perpetuity in the form that we're currently in, at least, is pretty minimal. I don't see that happening. So there will be, I'm sure, future consequences to all this stuff, just probably not for humans. I'm Nora Sachs. Welcome to Richest Hill, a podcast about the past, present, and future of one of America's most notorious Superfund sites for Montana Public Radio. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether it's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at SierraNevada.com. I live a mile away from the Berkeley pit, and every time I visit, I leave hyper aware of the contradictions and compromises that go hand in glove with industrialization. I find myself wondering who thought chiseling a colossal hole in the earth was a good idea and why. So today, let's take a dive, figuratively, into open pit mining and some controversial decisions made late last century that changed Butte's land, people, and environmental legacy forever. This is episode four. We gave it to the pit. When you're reporting on Superfund and a 400-page tome comes out called The City That Ate Itself, it's essentially required reading. It sounds like a horror movie, right? And there's maybe some horror in there because there's, you know, there are people being moved and there's, you know, people losing their jobs and dramatic changes like that. 
But I, you know, I think beyond the kind of horror movie-ness of it, I think it does say something about how the Berkeley pit fits in, in Butte's past and its present and future. Author Brian Leach is a history professor at Augustana College in Illinois, but he's from Bozeman, Montana originally, and says early on, he got stuck on both Butte and the pit. He says the origins of his book are him trying to figure out what used to be there and why is it not there anymore. Leach says the simplest answer is that open pit mining was the Anaconda Company's attempt to save Butte. They were convinced that underground mining was on the decline, and they were trying out different types of mass mining techniques. And so mass mining, right, essentially just means that they had figured out how to process a lot of the material afterwards, after they already dug it out, as opposed to having to follow very specifically the veins underground. See, after World War I, the mining industry took a hit, and so did the mining city. After 75 years of underground mining, the most accessible and richest veins of copper on the Butte Hill had played out, and labor and supply costs were mounting. World War II was a shot in the arm for the copper industry. And so was the post-war reconstruction and consumer demand. When you step inside the total electric home, you step into an entirely new concept in living, organized around electric centers. How about a dream house in the suburbs, complete with a refrigerator and TV and a shiny new car to drive you there? Anaconda's geologists did studies showing there were still plenty of minerals in Butte. It's just that the veins of ore were smaller, more dispersed, lower grade, or simply left over. Instead of performing surgery, it's just so much easier to just start digging down than it is to go underground and then try to dig up and out and under. And so it made a lot of sense to them at that time. So beginning in the 1950s in Butte, mining, as they say, saw the light. Monster earth-moving machines like haul trucks, rotary drill rigs, bulldozers, and electric power shovels appeared, their jaws chomping away at the skin of the earth like a fleet of mechanized T-Rexes. After excavating a few test pits around town, the company went full speed ahead with the Berkeley. This shift to mechanization, to quantity over quality, made business sense to the company's executives, now headquartered in New York City. But for Butte's independent miners who knew how to do, well, just about everything, it meant adapting to a drastically different industry. You know, they, they called it a mine, but it ain't got a lid on it. Remember Al Beavis, the old-school, tough-as-nails underground miner we met in episode two? I loved it. I didn't like it. I loved it. Well, after 20 years crushing it underground, Al's boss at the Anaconda Company assigned him to go work as a supervisor in the Berkeley pit in 1968. Al called it construction work, though maybe it's more like destruction work. You know, everything's bigger. You're, you're hauling trucks. You've got big haul trucks. You've got shovels in place of mucking machines, and the blasts are bigger. You're blasting 150 holes. It might contain a 90-ton of nitrate, and you just got to get used to that. It's, it's different. You're driving down a road instead of walking in a drift. You know, the sun's over your head instead of the dark and timber, and, and you get damn cold in the pit when it's pretty warm on the ground, you know, especially in the winter. Okay. And it was, you know, just nasty work. There were trade-offs, of course. Mining in the open pit was a lot safer than mining underground. But while the pit no doubt saved lives, it cost a lot of highly skilled Butte miners their jobs. When it was in full swing, the pit had around 1,500 employees, 
and 13 or so different craft unions. Historian Brian Leach says, historically, the miners' union was the most powerful, but with fewer and fewer miners, that also changed. Then it's just really hard to also get a lot of work done because there's bickering over which union can do what task and who can move a light from one place to another based on what was written into the union contract. And so it also just becomes a much messier workplace for a lot of them in the open pit. Leach says he also heard from other miners who made the switch and didn't get kicked to the curb that working in the pit felt kind of like being in a panopticon. Essentially, you were overlooked from a tower, you know, <laughs> so it's, it is true surveillance. They just felt like they were under everyone's watchful eye and control at all times. I think that's pretty common for a lot of people's jobs now, but it felt so different to a lot of these miners who had experienced both of those workplace environments. Al Beavis said what he missed most was the ambition he felt as a contract miner underground. So he tried to course correct. He marched up to Anaconda's offices on the sixth floor of the Hennessy building to tell them they had made a big mistake. I told him, I said, Vic, I don't like that damn pit. I said, I want out of it and I want to go back underground. He said, no, kid, he said, you, you stick with the pit. <laughs> you get used to it. <laughs> Here I am talking to the general manager. He didn't satisfy me, so then I went back to the pit and I just made up my mind, hey, here we go. Al would stay for another 15 years. But he says in order to function in the Berkeley pit, on the surface, he had to forget everything he ever knew or loved about underground mining. But it wasn't just squishier things like culture and identity and butte that were transformed by open pit mining. It was the gut of the richest hill itself. See, the pit started in 55, and I, I got here in 56. Of course, Barbara, you know, the Irish lady that I was engaged to, she met me at the airport, and then, of course, I drove, and I'm going down by Meadowville, the head for McQueen, and I looked, there's a big hole in the ground. And I says, what the heck is that? She said, oh, that's the Berkeley pit. I says, what? That's Tom Holter, describing what it was like to return to Butte after serving two years overseas to find an open pit mine being dug in his backyard. While he was gone, no one had bothered to mention it. <laughs> I first met Tom, who's 84 now, down at the Marine Hooch in Butte, at the weekly gathering of the Retired Mine Workers Club. Well, this started, I think it was 18, 1986 or 1987. At one time, we had over 400 members. Now we're down to 19. Someone pipes up and says, yeah, right after they die, they quit coming. And what do you guys do every week? Well, coffee and donuts every Thursday. And because you play pitch and tell a bunch of lies. and you know, Sometimes you bring a lot of ore out of the ground, but it hasn't happened for a while. Tom is clearly the ringleader of the group. That day, he was waxing poetic about smoked meats. Oh, Gwitty Brothers. That was a store in Meadowville. And uh, on the sign, you know, they had Gwitty Brothers sausage and salami. Well, for uh, when I was a little kid, I thought that was their names. 
<laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> and, you, and you ate their sausage and salami. Oh, you bet. Yeah. It yeah. was really good. Yeah. Tom was born in Meterville, one of a handful of vibrant little ethnic enclaves on the east side of town that sprang to life during the city's underground mining heyday, when immigrants from all over the globe, including Irish, English, Italians, Finns, Eastern Europeans, and Chinese, made a beeline for Butte America. I asked him to tell me what Meterville was like and what happened to it on a sunny day in April on plastic chairs outside the World Museum of Mining. Meterville was Butte's Little Italy, a rough-hewn, working-class neighborhood with the highway to Helena running through a bustling main street about a mile east of Uptown. It was known for its showy Christmas displays, and as far as I can tell, it was a foodie mecca. There were the famous Italian supper clubs, vegetable gardens everywhere, and lots of family-owned grocery stores, like the one Holter's grandfather ran. As a kid, Tom stocked shelves and sold candy there for a dollar a day. The Cimitari grocery, Cimitari sells grocery. As a teen, he helped his uncle deliver groceries in their Plymouth coop. His mom's side of the family was Italian. Most all the holidays, you know, we eat at my grandma, well, my aunt. My grandmother was dead, and she'd cook uh, fantastic Italian dinners, you know, spaghetti, raviolas, and stuff like that. We'd have that on most of the holidays. Traditions from the motherland flourished among generations of Italian-Americans in Meterville. So much so that every fall, trains would come through the neighborhood carrying fresh grapes and cherries by the carload. And they'd go pick up the grapes, and then they'd deliver to the different houses, and then, of course, wine was made. And then after the wine was grapple. Oh, what's the difference again? Well, grapple, <laughs> it, it wasn't tasty. I mean, it, it was tasty, but it wasn't good. And a lot of people used to put a little bit of cherry juice in it. In fact, i got a bottle of grapple at home right now. Later on, Holter's family moved to nearby McQueen, also working class, a little more isolated and suburban and closer to the mountains, with over a thousand residents, mostly Eastern European. Tom said it was a terrific place to grow up. It had a couple groceries, a barber shop, an ice cream parlor, an athletic club, mine dumps to climb on. Apparently, every kid played baseball and... Everybody in McQueen had a nickname. And they called you the Bull. I'm the Bull, yeah. Tommy the Bull. Tommy the Bull. Yeah. Back from the Army, Tom got a job with the Anaconda Company on the rope gang, shimmying up head frames and down cables underground and rigging haul trucks together in the Berkeley pit. By now, he and his wife were raising their own four kids in McQueen. Meanwhile, the Berkeley pit spiraled wider and deeper as the size and number of machines went up. Bigger was always better. And every day, industrial hazards and risks inch closer. Imagine hundreds of pounds of dynamite blasting holes in the rock at intervals around the clock right near your house. Plaster walls spiderwebbed, windows cracked, neighbors complained of incessant noise, dust, vibrations. Well, the company were, you know, their dumpster, starting putting their ore dumps, you know, the waste dumps behind McQueen, just north of McQueen there. And, uh, and then they start forcing people in Meadville to move. And so we knew, yeah. we knew then that they're coming this way. With the expansion of the Berkeley pit 
meant for Tom and other Eastsiders after this short break. Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether it's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at SierraNevada.com. By the 1950s, Butte wasn't exactly the booming metropolis it had been at the turn of the 20th century, but it was still going pretty strong, with a population of around 50,000 spread all over the Butte Hill and east to the foothills of the Continental Divide. Historian Brian Leach says that's one of the reasons Butte was actually late to the open pit mining party. According to their calculations, a lot of the ore the Anaconda Company wanted, there was a city already built on top of it. It was referred to them as surface features and all the, all the engineers' documents, right, that they were going to run into surface features, um, like as if they weren't people's houses and businesses, <laughs> which is what they are. But if the Berkeley pit and its buffer zone were going to expand, some part of town would have to go. The company even considered demolishing Uptown Butte, which is now a National Historic District. Finally, after more sampling and testing, they selected a plan, number 15. Plan 15, it took a little bit of a lot of areas, I guess is what I would say. Those areas? Yep, they were the thriving, working-class immigrant neighborhoods of Meterville, East Butte, and McQueen, where Tom Holter's family was living in the same house he grew up in. Like, I had a move. They, the company bought me out. They didn't give me nowhere near what my house was worth. In 1967, they bought me out to move out of McQueen. One by one, Anaconda's land department permanently removed thousands of people and relocated them all across town, scattering generations of families, neighbors, and old friends. It was a trying time. Nobody wanted to move. We really liked where we were. Our neighborhoods were great. I've often wondered how much of a fight, if any, locals put up. Historian Brian Leach says there was some resistance at first, but since Anaconda owned most of the land, they could force you out using eminent domain and everybody knew it. So residents gave in, and many felt that by sacrificing their homes and communities, they were ensuring a future for Butte. It just kind of is there. They don't even talk about it as if it's the company doing it. They talk about it as if it's like an expanding organism. You know, it's kind of zoomorphism. They they just say, the pit needed it, and so we gave it to the pit. So it's, it's almost like people get removed from the situation because the pit needs it, and the pit is the lifeblood of Butte, and therefore, why would we do anything different? On the ground, Butians witnessed a slow-motion tsunami as their homes, schools, churches, community centers, and playgrounds gradually disappeared under waves of rock and rubble. As the 1960s and 70s wore on, east side neighborhoods, including the one where Tom Holter used to eat ravioli and make grappa with his family, were buried, lost, swallowed whole. Well, see, where the water is now in the Berkeley pit, that was Meteorial. And then east of the pit there, it was McQueen, where that big dump is now, that was McQueen. And then south of McQueen was East Butte. Tom speaks so matter-of-factly about the whole experience. I imagine going back to Maryland to visit the house I grew up in, the cul-de-sac where I learned to ride a bike, my favorite adolescent haunt, the 7-Eleven, and finding that it all just vanished without a trace or was taken over by an environmental dead zone. 
How do you reconcile a force that at once created and destroyed so much? Do you think that digging the pit was worth it? Well, you know, I knew you thought of it that much. But, it, you know, it put a lot of people to work. You know. And right now it's causing a lot of problems, water problems. But they, they say they have a solution to it, so I hope so. But the Berkeley was never a pit unto itself. The great Oz has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. You know how sometimes you encounter something and it feels like you're finally getting a peek at the wizard behind the curtain? Thank you so much. Sure. I have to tell you, I haven't looked at tracing things in quite a while. It's like, oh, I had to do sort of a quick... For me, that was the work of Janet Finn. She wrote Tracing the Veins, a tale of two cities, Butte, Montana, and Chukicamata, Chile, so intimately connected by copper mining and capitalism that she says you can't really understand one community without the other. I'm Janet Finn. I'm a faculty member in the School of Social Work at the University of Montana, Missoula. I was born in Missoula and grew up in Butte. 30 years ago, Finn was doing her doctoral work in social work and anthropology, studying the history of strikes in Butte through the eyes of women. She says she started to see Chilean mine operations cryptically appear in the backdrop of those strikes over and over. So in the 90s, she traveled down to South America to the high and dry Atacama Desert in northern Chile. I grew up with that notion of we're the richest hill on earth and this, this centerpiece. And then I go to these mines in northern Chile, and I remember the first time I was there, I was alongside a lot of tourists who were up there. It's a very isolated part of northern Chile. And people were in awe of this massive hole in the ground and this very austere environment. And I felt right at home. It just looked so familiar to me. That hole in the ground was Chukicamata, which is one of the largest open pit mines in the world. The reason it looks so familiar? I like to think of it as the Berkeley Pit's bigger, badder, older sister. The Anaconda Company started open pit mining there in the 1920s, 30 years before they broke any ground on the Berkeley, a continent away. Finn says after World War I, Anaconda began strategically positioning itself to become the world's largest producer of copper, and not just copper ore. It started buying up everything from mines to brass, wire, and cable companies. The acquisition of Chile's tremendous reserves? Checkmate. It was just like, you know, bars of copper that went out. So it, the Chilean state got very little of that because it came to other places within the Anaconda Company holdings to be refined or produced into something that added value to it. So that sort of vertical integration with its horizontal holdings really contributed to Anaconda becoming such a powerhouse. Now a multinational corporation, Anaconda could play its global copper resources and labor pools off each other to its own advantage, using carrot or stick differentially. Despite the post-war economic boom that followed World War II and soaring corporate profits, labor strife continued in Butte. And every three years, the union contract would be up for renegotiation. And miners wondered how the company would respond. Families were always sort of in the situation of saving and planning for the next layoff or strike or shutdown or slowdown. So there was this cycle of sort of 
constant uncertainty that people were always planning and preparing for. And yet Finn says in her research, she came across this folk theory for miners here in Butte. The notion that the company never had a strike it didn't want. That sounds counterintuitive, because strikes are supposed to be organized labor's strongest weapon. And unions had gained power back under FDR and New Deal legislation. But when Finn checked it out, she found that workers in Butte always had one arm tied behind their backs. When there'd be a strike in one community, there would be uh, you know, increased production in the other, or vice versa. When there would be sort of political reasons for holding out on wage concessions, maybe in Chukikamata, that the company wants a stronger political stance on taxation with the Chilean state, production goes up in Butte. You don't, you don't want to risk a strike here because you're holding off on something there. So seeing these really intricate patterns that seemed, they made such sense from a corporate eye view, and yet we were sort of strangers to one another on the ground to be able to respond proactively. So often it's the market that gets the credit or the blame for the cycles of supply and demand and boom and bust that bring prosperity and hardship to mining towns like Butte. I went in thinking the copper market, sort of this abstract, you know, invisible hand, there's buyers, there's sellers. But Finn's close study of Anaconda's global operations in the 20th century reveals that very little copper was actually traded on the open market. Instead, the company executed a complicated formula of buying its own copper and selling to its own subsidiaries. It was weaving and tangled in a sticky web of economic and political interests and alliances. So that market is much more of sort of a smaller pool of relations and obligations and sort of long-term, short-term risk avoidance. And so I think that helped me then think about, okay, this is a, a different picture here. So while the Anaconda Company was telling Butte that the city needed to literally eat itself in order to survive, and fostering a sense of, we're all in this together, the richest hill on earth had lost its favorite child status to the greatest mining camp in the world long ago. For 50 years, Chile, not Butte, was the source of two-thirds to three-quarters of company profits. Anaconda had gone gangbusters there, exploiting its resources to the hilt. I think in 1959, I want to say they produced maybe 70,000 tons of ore out of Butte and 350,000 tons of ore out of the combined Chilean operations. So they were really, you know, they just had this ore body. Plus they were also seeing, I think, political handwriting on the wall. That message said Nuestro Cobre, literally our copper. Chileans got fed up with being held captive by a foreign corporation and capitalist system. In 1970, they elected the country's first socialist president, Salvador Allende. Janet Finn says what she heard repeatedly was that... So the biggest fans of Salvador Allende were the miners in Butte, Montana, because the hope then was now Anaconda is going to lose its Chukicamata ore body and Butte will be back center stage. One year later, in 1971, Allende made good on his promise to nationalize Chile's copper mines. Workers in Butte cheered, but for the Anaconda Company, it would prove to be a fatal blow. Historian Brian Leach, who we met earlier, says towards the end of the 1970s, 
they were really struggling, and you know, this company that had always been doing quite well it suddenly is just in dire straits. And so it's ripe for the taking in terms of possible business takeovers. In 1977, a wealthy American oil company named Atlantic Richfield, Arco for short, purchased the once mighty Anaconda Company. This kind of diversification was part of a hot trend and ushered in a new multinational order. At that time, uh, oil was king and sure. they were making tons of money. Yeah. And there, a lot of the companies were worried about takeovers, mm-hmm. hostile and the rest of it. So yeah. they wanted, you know, and, yeah. and they just thought it was a natural step from oil right. extraction to copper. Well, it isn't, you know. And uh, so, the, you know, all the mining co- or all the oil companies at that time, Exxon, mm-hmm. <coughs> got into mining, Chevron. Mm-hmm. They all right. got. They all bought like yeah. metal mining yeah. operations. Yeah. Did it seem like Arco had any idea what they were doing? Uh, no. <laughs> That's Frank Gardner, speaking not with me, but Brian Leach. I'll explain why in a second. Soon after buying all of Anaconda's holdings, Arco officials made a series of controversial and fateful corporate decisions. I searched high and low, trying to find someone who could offer an insider perspective and cut through the speculation. The one guy everyone said I had to talk to is Frank Gardner. The thing is, Gardner didn't want to talk to me. He's 84 now, living that snowbird life, and said he's done rehashing the past. So I got permission from the Butte Silverbow archives to use an interview Leach conducted with Gardner at a cafe in Wise River, Montana, in 2010. Gardner is a third-generation Butian, and he was actually mining overseas when Anaconda merged with Arco. But in 1979, he was asked to come back and manage the Berkeley pit. You came back to manage an operation you already knew that would have to be shut down. Shut down to be huh. saved. To be yeah. saved. Gardner says when Arco took over the Berkeley pit in the late 70s, they not only lacked expertise in mining, they inherited some systemic problems from Anaconda. There was serial conflict between labor and management, and the ratio of ore to waste rock was just getting worse. By the early 80s, an ounce of Butte copper cost $1.30 to produce, but was selling for half that on the open market. In two years, Gardner says Arco lost $100 million on the pit alone. They tried to trim the fat, but productivity and profits tanked. What happened next is burned into Pat Williams' memory. He was Montana's newly elected Democratic congressman at the time. And he and the rest of the state's D.C. delegation were negotiating with ARCO to build a new smelter in the town of Anaconda and a new refinery in Great Falls. And the negotiations to get those things done were moving along very, very well. Then one day, the company called and said they had an announcement to make. So Williams and the others gathered in a room at the Capitol building. They dealt out file folders to the four of us, like a fellow at the M&M dealing cards. We started to sit down, and before my butt hit the chair, they had said, gentlemen, we have bad news for you. We're closing our Montana operations. And I think it was Senator Baucus said, when? And they said, in the morning. What drove ARCO executives in Denver to cut their losses in Montana? Was it fighting with unions, purely economic factors, a big tax write-off, 
or looming environmental regulations, it's still murky. But either way, the dominoes started to fall. First, ARCO closed the refinery in Great Falls and the Anaconda smelter in 1980. Then, in April 1982, ARCO landed the ultimate slug in the gut. On Earth Day, the company gave the order to shut off the water pumps way down on the 3,900-foot level of the Kelly mine shaft and suspend mining in the Berkeley pit. They didn't even take the water pumps out of the deep mines. They just left everything what it was, including some now rusted equipment, and they left. At that moment, 10,000 miles of underground mine workings below the city began to flood with groundwater, buried in a watery grave. Current water elevation in our Berkeley pit is estimated at As the water continued to rise, it had to go somewhere, and Lake Berkeley as we know it was born. Critical level of 5410, 5,354 feet above sea level, or 31 feet and 5 inches, 30 feet and 9 inches, 30 feet and 3 inches, 28 feet 4 inches, 26 feet 10 inches from the critical level of 5410. According to an ARCO memo, Quote, the decision to suspend pumping will save Anaconda Minerals approximately $10 million a year, a substantial amount at any time, but especially significant in the current depressed state of the metals mining market, unquote. Frank Gardner says, But that was one that I wasn't really involved in. I didn't fight it. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, so if you look at it purely on a financial basis, Mm -hmm. to this point of time, mm -hmm. it made sense. Butte's mayor at the time told me that local officials learned about the decision after the fact. Atlantic Richfield never had a conversation with him about it. And pretty soon, Montanans switching on the TV news heard this. These giant trucks high in the Rocky Mountains are doomed. Within hours, there will be no mining in the mining city of Butte. This shutdown is the end of an era in Montana. The next year, in 1983, ARCO announced they were closing down all Butte operations, just six years after taking them over. Former Congressman Pat Williams says the town was in absolute shock. It was stunning, and it was an arrogance that was beyond the pale. But to some mine workers, like Al Beavis, there were hints of what was coming. Well, the indicators were we weren't doing nothing. Beavis was a foreman at the Berkeley pit when it changed hands, and Arco kept him on to help maintain the properties as the mine was powering down. As a result, he was forced to lay off many of his colleagues, and in some cases, friends. The guy that was above me, he couldn't do it, so he made me do it. You know, he's my boss. I have to, you know, you got to do what your boss tells you or take the bump. So, yeah, I had to go out to a good friend of mine's house. Bill Dorn, he's dying of cancer and give him his pink slip. By then, Butte's workforce wasn't just shrinking. It had shriveled up like an earthworm left too long in the sun. The unemployment rate was at a whopping 22%. Butte was on the verge of becoming a modern-day ghost town. The copper boom that electrified America had turned to absolute bust. And the years were bad. You know, there was, you know, your next-door neighbor, they weren't working. You know, I'm working, you know. He isn't. It's, uh, I don't know, it's just a bad time. Frank Gardner said no one in Butte believes this, but Arco was originally planning to close the mine temporarily and reopen once they had a chance to resolve some issues and restructure. 
But then the price of copper plunged further. Later that same year, ARCO announced they were getting out of mining for good. Later, Fortune magazine would label Atlantic Richfield's deal to buy the Anaconda Company one of the decade's worst mergers. Because right around this time, environmental issues which had been hiding in the bushes started banging on the door. As Pat Williams says, And then all of a sudden the party ended. Champagne glasses were tipped over. The champagne bottles were empty. The confetti was on the floor. And there's the major D with the bill. Next time on Richest Hill, the dawning of the Superfund era. Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, our producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer. Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch. Other original music composed and performed by Jonas Benetta and Oren Pearson. Special thanks to the Butte Silverbow Archives and Chamber of Commerce, Brian Leach, Al Beavis, Tom Holter, the Retired Mine Workers Club, Janet Finn, Max Counter, Frank Gardner, Buck Loomis, Jim Kuypers, Evan Barrett, Roger Gordon, Jesse Eide, Jim Keene, Montana Resources, and NPR Story Lab. Stay up to date at ButtePodcast.org.